Hello and welcome to more, which stands for Midday Obviously Reads Everything. So, this is the podcast where I try my very best to finish The Hunger Games. As a self-proclaimed bookworm, it's kind of my duty. So join me and all of my guests as we try to read through the whole series. So sit back and relax as I do my best, my very, very, very best to read all of it. I hope I like it and I hope you like it too. So, let's begin. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the very final episode of the podcast. We are down to the last four chapters of The Hunger Games. So, yeah, this is more. Midday obviously reads everything. And we are getting to our second part of the finale. Um, I realize now there are actually not a lot of pages left, and we read a lot. So, I'll give you a quick rundown of what happened last time, if maybe you skipped. I guess. I don't know, but it was pretty long. It was an hour last time, so this is gonna also maybe reach an hour. We'll see. But last time, um, Katniss and Peta were together. Katniss was helping Peta with his wounds, but his wound was really bad. He had blood poisoning, so she had to go to the feast because, uh, so uh, what's his face? Temple Smith or whatever. He, like, said, oh, we're having a feast, and we have an item that you really, really need. So basically, uh, Katniss is like, oh, I'm gonna go, and Peter's like, don't go, and Katniss is like, I gotta go, sorry, and then Hamish, like, gives him a gift of, like, uh, sleeping things, so Katniss puts Peter to sleep, so Peter's sleeping, and she goes up, and she grabs the thing, and then Thresh, uh, kills, kills Clove, and then, um, he's like, I, I don't want to owe you anything, so I'm gonna let you go, so he lets her go, and so then she comes back, she heals Peter. And then, but she got, like, a, a cut on her forehead. Clove, Clove got to her first. And then, like, Clove tried to hurt her. Then Thresh killed her. And then Thresh let go. So then, now they're together now. And now, they're getting to the end of the games. Um, Peter's getting better. Katniss is getting better. And we are now, like, they're kind of getting closer, I think. I don't know if it's, like, real or if it's fake. But Peter definitely is showing off, like, the, Oh, Katniss, my baby girl, I love you. Mm-mm. You know, and so now we're gonna be listening up to the very last four, five chapters, four, five chapters. There's 27 chapters, less than 80 pages left. Less than 80 pages, I think. So we're gonna do this. I'm so excited. <laughs> okay, ready? Uh, we are on page 394 and chapter 23. So let us start. <clears throat> Every cell in my body wants me to dig into the stew and cram it, handful by handful, into my mouth. But Peter's voice stops me. We better take a slow on that stew. Remember the first night on the train? The rich food makes us sick, and I wasn't even starving then. You're right, and I could just inhale the whole thing, I say regretfully, but I don't. We are quite sensible. We each have a roll, half an apple, and an egg-sized serving of stew and rice. I make myself eat the stew in tiny spoonfuls, then even sense the silverware and plates, savoring each bite. When we finish, I stare longingly at the dish. I want more. Me too. Tell you what, we wait an hour. If it stays down, then we get another serving, Peta says. Agreed, I say. It's going to be a long hour. Maybe not that long, says Peta. What was that you were saying before the food arrived? Nothing about me. No, competition. Best thing that ever happened to you? I don't remember the last part, I say, hoping it's too dim in here for the cameras to pick up on my blush. Oh, that's right. That's what I was thinking, he says. Scoot over. I'm freezing. <clears throat> I make food for him. <laughs> 
I make room for him in her sleeping bag. We lean back against the cave wall, my head on his shoulder. His arms wrap around me. I can feel Hamish nudging me to keep up the act. So since we were five, you never noticed any other girls? I ask him. No, I noticed, I noticed just about every girl, but none of them made a lasting impression on, on me but you. I'm sure that would thrill your parents. Do you like a girl from the seam? I say. Hardly, but I couldn't care less. Anyway, if we make it back, you won't be a girl from the seam. You'll be a girl from the victor's village, he says. That's right. If we win, we'll each get a house in the part of the town reserved for Hunger Games victors. Long ago, when the games began, the capital had built a dozen fine houses in each district. Of course, in ours, only one is occupied. Most of the others have never been lived in at all. A disturbing thought hits me. But then our neighbors will be Haymitch. <laughs> and our only neighbor will be Haymitch. Uh, that'll be nice, says Peter, tightening his arm around me. You and me and Haymitch. Very cozy. Picnics, birthdays, long winter nights around the fire retelling old Hunger Game tales. I told you he hates me, I say, but I can't help laughing at the image of Haymitch becoming my new pal. Only sometimes when he's sober. I've never heard him say one negative thing about you, says Peter. He's never sober, I protest. That's right. Who am I thinking? Oh, I know. It's Cinnabon who likes you. But that's mainly because you didn't try to run when he set you on fire, says Peter. On the other hand, Hamish? Well, if I were you, I'd avoid Hamish completely. He hates you. Five, you said I was his favorite, I says. He hates me more, says Peter. I don't think people in general are his sort of thing. I know those audience will enjoy our having fun at Hamish's expense. <clears throat> He has been around so long, he's practically an old friend, some of them. And after his head dive off the stage of the reaping, everyone knows him. By this time, they'll have dragged him out of the control room for interviews about us. No telling what sort of lies he's made up. He's at something of a disadvantage because most mentors have a partner, another victor to help them, whereas Haymitch has, has to be ready to go into action at any moment. Kind of like me when I was alone in the arena. I wonder how he's holding up with the drinking the attention and the stress of trying to keep us alive it's funny Hamish and i don't get along well in person maybe peter's right about us being alike because he seems to be able to communicate with me by timing of those gifts like how i knew i must be close to water when we withheld it and how i knew the sleep syrup was wasn't just to ease peter's pain and how i know now i have to play out the romance he hasn't made much effort to connect with peter really perhaps he thinks a bowl of broth would just be a bowl of broth to peter whereas i'll see the strings attached to it a thought hits me i'm amazed at the questions taken so i'm amazed <laughs> i'm amazed the questions taken so long to surface maybe it's because i've only recently begun to view Hamish with a degree of curiosity how do you think he did who did what? Peter asks. Hamish, hey, how do you think he won the games? I say. Peter considers this quite well before he answers. Hamish hey, is sturdily built, but no physical, no physically wonder, no physical wonder like Cato or Thresh. He's not particularly handsome, not in the way that causes sponsors to rain gifts on you. And he's so sturdily it's hard to imagine anyone teaming up with him. Only one way Hamish hey, could have won. And Peter says it's just as I'm reaching his, this conclusion myself. He outsmarted the others, says Peter. I nod and let the conversation drop, but secretly I'm wondering if Hamish sobered up long enough to help Peter and me because he thought we might just have wits to survive. Maybe he wasn't always drunk. Maybe in the beginning he tried to help the tributes, but then it got unbearable. It must be awful to mentor two kids and watch them die. Year after year after year, I realize that if I get out of here, that will become my job, to mentor the girl from District 12. The idea is so repent repentant? Repent repellent? Yeah, repellent. I thrust it from my mind. Around half an hour has passed before I decided to eat again. Peter's too hungry himself to put up an argument. While I'm dishing up two more small servings of lamb stew and rice, we hear the anthem begin to play. Peter presses his eye against a crack in the rocks to watch the sky. There won't be anything to see tonight, I say, far more interested in the stew than the sky. Nothing's happened or we would have heard a cannon. Katniss, um, he repeats, but I find myself wanting to ignore him.
Oh, whoopsie. Whoopsie. I skipped a line. Uh-huh. Katniss, Peta whispers quietly. What? Should we split another roll, too? I asked. Katniss, he, he repeats, but I find myself wanting to ignore him. I'm going to split one, but I'll save the cheese for tomorrow, I say as I see Peta staring at me. What? Thresh is dead, says Peta. He can't be, I say. They must have fired the cannon during the thunder. We missed it, says Peta. Are you sure? I mean, it's pouring buckets out here. I don't know how you can see anything, I say. Pushing away from the rocks, squint up at the dark, rainy sky. For about ten seconds, I catch a distorted glimpse of Thresh's face, and then he's gone, just like that. I slump down against the rocks and momentarily forget about the task at hand. Thresh is dead. I should be happy, right? One is tribute to face and a powerful one, too. But I'm not happy. All I could think about is Thresh letting me go, letting me run because of Rue, who died with a spear in her stomach. You all right? asked Peta. I give a non-committal shrug and cut my elbows into my hand, hugging them close to my body. I have to bury the real pain because who's going to bet on a tribute who keeps sniveling over the death of her opponents? Rue was one thing. We were allies. She was so young, but no one will understand my sorrow at Thresh's murder. The, world, the word pulled me up short. Murdered! Thankfully, I didn't say it out loud. That's not going to win me any points in the arena. What I do say is, it's just, if we didn't win, I want to thrust you. Can you let me go? And because of Rue. Yeah, I know, says Peta. This means we're one step close to District 12. He nudges a plate of food into my hands. Eat. It's still warm. I take a bite of the stew to show I don't really care, but it's like glue in my mouth, and it takes a lot of effort to swallow. It also means Catcher will be hunting us. And he's got supplies again, says Peta. He'll be wounded, I bet, <laughs> I say. What makes you say that? Peta asks. Because Thresh would have never gone down without a fight. He's so strong, I mean, he was. And we were, and they were in his territory, I say. Good, says Peta. The more wounded Kato is, the better. I wonder how Foxface is making out. Oh, she's fine, I say peevishly. I'm still angry she thought of hiding in the corny corn, and I didn't. Probably be easier to catch Kato than her. Maybe they'll catch each other and we just have to go home, says Peta. But we better be extra careful about the watches. I dozed off a few times. Me too, I admit, but not tonight. Finish our food in silence, then Peta offers to take the first watch. I bury down into the sleeping bag next to him, pulling my hood up over my face to hide it from the cameras. I need a few moments of privacy where I could let any emotion cross my face without being seen. Under the hood, I silently say goodbye to Thresh and thank him for his life, uh, for my life. I promise to remember him and, if I can, do something to help his family and Ruse if I win. Then I escape into sleep, comforted by a full belly and the steady warmth of Peta beside me. When Peter wakes me later, the first thing I register the smell of goat cheese. He's holding out half a roll spread out on the creamy white stuff and toppled with app with topped with apple slices. Don't be mad, he says. I had to eat again. Here's your half. Oh good, I say immediately, taking a huge bite. The strong fatty cheese tastes like the kind prim makes, and the apples are sweet and crunchy. Mmm. We made a goat cheese and apple tart at the bakery, he says. Bet that's expensive, I say. Too expensive for my family to eat, unless it's gone very stale. Of course, practically everything we eat is stale, says Peter, pulling the sleeping bag up around him. Less than a minute, he's snoring. Huh. I always assume the shopkeepers live the soft life, and it's true. Peter has always had enough to eat, but there's something kind of depressing about living your life on stale bread. The hard, dry loaves that no one else wanted. One thing about us, since I brought... Since I bring home food on a daily basis, most of it's so fresh you'll have to make sure it isn't going to make a run for it. Somewhere during my shift, the rain stops, not gradually, but at once. The downpour ends with only this residual, residual trippings of water from branches and the rush of now overflowing streams below us. A full, beautiful moon emerges, and without the glasses I can see outside. I can't decide if the moon is real or merely a projection of the game maker. I know it was fully... And it was full shortly before I left home. Gail and I watched it rise as we hunted to the late hours. How long have I been gone? I'm guessing it's been about two weeks in the arena. And there, there was that week of preparation in the capital. Maybe the moon has completed its cycle. 
For some reason, I badly want it to be my moon, the same one I see in the woods around District 12. That would give me something to cling to in this surreal world of the arena, too, where the authenticity of everything is to be doubted. Four of us left. For the first time, I allowed myself to truly think about the possibility I might make a home. To fame, to wealth, to my own house in the Victor's Village, my mother and Prim would live there with me. No more fear of hunger, a new kind of freedom. But then, what will my life be like on a daily basis? Most of it has been consumed by the acquisition of food. Taking that away, I'm not really sure who I am, what my identity is. The idea scares me some. I think of Hamish with all his money. What did he do? What did, what did his life become? He lives alone, no wife or children, most of his waking hours drunk. I don't want to end up like that. But you won't be alone, I whispered to myself and my mother and Prim. Well, for some time being. And then, I didn't want to think about it then. When Prim has to grow up and mother passes away, I know I'll never marry, never risk bringing a child into this world. Because if there's one thing being a victor doesn't guarantee, it's your children's safety. My kids' names would go right into the sleep reaping ball with everyone else's. And I swear I'll never let that happen. <clears throat> The sun eventually rises, its light slipping through the cracks and illuminating Peta's face. Who will he transform into if you make if you make it home? This perplexing, good-natured boy who can spin out lies so convincingly the whole of Panam believes him to be hopelessly in love with me. I'll admit it, there are moments when he makes me believe it to myself. At least we'll be friends, I think. Nothing will change the fact that we've saved each other's lives in here. And beyond that, he will always be the boy with the bread. Good friends. Anything beyond that, though. And I feel Gail's gray eyes watching me, watching Peter all the way from District 12. Discomfort causes me to move. I scoot over and shake Peter's shoulder. His eyes go open sleepily, and when they focus on me, he pulls me down for a long kiss. We're wasting hunting time, I say, when I finally break away. I wouldn't call it wasting, he says, giving a huge stretch as he sits up. So, did we hunt on an empty stomach to give us an edge? Not us, I say. We stuff ourselves to give us staying power. Count me in, Peter says. But I can see he's surprised when I divide the rest of the stew and rice hand a heaping plate to him. All this? We'll earn it back today, I say, and we both plow into our plow. Both plow into our plate. Even coal is one of the best things I've ever tasted. I bend my fork and scrape out the last dabs of gravy with my fingers. I can feel Effie Trinket shuddering at my mannerisms. Hey, Effie, watch this, says Peta. He tosses his fork over his shoulder and literally licks the plate clean with his tongue, making loud, satisfied sounds. Then he blows a kiss out to her in general direction and called, We missed you, Effie. I cover my mouth with, with I cover his mouth, ooh, I cover his mouth with my hand, but I'm laughing. Stop, Katsu could be right outside our cave. He got my hand away. What do I care? We've got, I've got you to protect me now, says Peter, pulling me to him. Come on, I say his aspiration, intricately, intric intricating myself, extra, extra. I feel like it means like she's trying to like pull herself away, but I can't pronounce that. I feel like it's extricating, intricating, extricate, whatever. Release myself from his grasp, but not before he gets another kiss. Once we're packed up and standing outside our cave, our mood shifts to serious. It's as though for the last few days, sheltered by the rocks and the rain and Cash's preoccupations with thrush, we were given a respite, a holiday of sorts. Now, although the day is sunny and warm, we both sense we're really back in the games. I hand Pete on my knife since whatever weapons... <laughs> He once had are long gone, and he slipped it into his belt. My last seven arrows of the twelve I sacrificed during the explosion, two at the feast, rattle a little too loosely in the quiver. I can't afford to lose anymore. He'll be hunting us now, says Peta. Catto isn't one to wait for his prey to wander by. If he's wounded, I begin. I won't, it won't matter, Peter breaks in. If he can move, he's coming. <clears throat> With all the rain, the stream has overrun its bank by several feet on either side. 
We saw a picture replenished by water. I checked the snares. I said days ago and come up empty. Not surprising with the weather. Besides, I haven't seen any many animals or signs of them in this area. If I want food. You better head back up to my old hunting grounds, I say. Your call. Just tell me what you need me to do. Peter says. Keep an eye out. I say. Stay on the rocks as much as possible. In the sense of leaving his tracks to follow. Listen for both of us. It's clear at this point that the explosion destroyed my hearing and my left ear for good. I'd walk in the water to cover my tracks completely, but I'm not sure Peter's leg could take the current. Although the drugs have erased the infection, he's still pretty weak. My forehead hurts along the, the knife cut. After three days, the bleeding has stopped. I wear a bandage um, around my head, though, just in case any physical education should bring it back. <clears throat> As we head up alongside the stream, we pass the place where I found Peter camouflaging the weeds and mud. One good thing between the downpour and the flooded banks, all kinds of hiding places have been wiped out. That means that if needed, if need be, we can come back to our cave. Otherwise, I wouldn't risk it with Cacho after us. The boulder diminished the rocks that eventually turned to pebbles, and then, to my relief, we're back on Pine Needle on the gentle incline of the forest floor. For the time being, I realize we have a problem. Navigating the rocky frame with a bad leg, we're naturally going to make some noise. But even on the smooth bed of needles, Peta is loud. And I mean loud, loud. As if he's stomping feet on something. I turn and look at him. What? He says. You've got to move her quietly, I say. Forget about cats. You're chasing off every rabbit in a 10-mile radius. Really? He says. Sorry, I didn't know. So I start up again, and he's a tiny bit better. But even with only one working ear, he's making me jump. <laughs> Can you take off your boots, I suggest. Here, he asked in disbelief, as if I asked him to come walk barefoot on hot cold or something. I have to remind myself that he's still not used to the woods, that this is scary forbidden place before the fence of District 12. I think of Gale and his velvet thread. It's eerily, it's eerie how little sound he makes, even when the leaves have fallen, and it's a challenge move at all without chasing off the game. I feel certain he's laughing back home. Yes, I say patiently. I will, too. That way we can both be quieter. Larry was making any noise. So we both strip off our boots and socks, and while there's some improvement, I could swear he's making an effort to snap every branch we encounter. Needless to say, although it takes several hours to reach our old camp with Rue, I've shot nothing. If the stream would settle down, fish might be an option, but the current's too strong. As we stopped and rest and drink, I try to work out a solution. Ideally, I jump Peter now with some simple root-gathering chore and go hunt. Then he'd be left with only a knife to defend himself against Kato's spears and superior strength. So what I'd really like is to try and conceal him somewhere safe, then go hunt and come back and collect him. But I have a feeling his ego is going to go for that suggestion. Katniss, he says, we need to split up. I know I'm chasing away the game. Only because your legs hurt, I say generously, because really, you can tell that's only a small part of the problem. I know, he says, so why don't you go on? Show me some plants to gather, and I, that way we can both be useful. Not if Kato comes and kills you, I try to say in a nice way, but it sounds like I think he's a weakling. Surprisingly, he just laughs. Look, I can handle Kato. I fought him before, didn't I? Yeah, and that turned out great. You ended up dying in a mud bank, and that's what I wanted to say, but I can't. He did, try, he did save my life by taking on Kato, after all. Try another tactic. What if he climbed up a tree and acted as a lookout while I hunted? I say, trying to make sound like it was very important work. <clears throat> what if he showed me what's edible around here and then go get us some meat? He says, mimicking my tone. Just don't go far in case you need help. I sigh and show him some roots to dig. We do need food, no question. One apple, two rolls, and a blob of cheese the size of a plum won't last long. It'll just go a short distance and hope Kato is a long way off. I teach him a bird whistle. Not the melody like ruse, but a simple two-tone whistle which we can use to communicate that we're all right. Fortunately, he's good at this. Leaving him with the pack, I head off. I feel like for the whistle, it's going to be like, or like, or like, doo-doo, <laughs> doo-doo, or something like that. I don't know. If it's a two-tone whistle, doo-doo, maybe, maybe like that. I don't know. I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's probably it. But anyway, getting ahead of myself as always. Let's continue. 
I feel like I'm 11 again, tethered not to the safety of the fence, but to PETA, although allowing myself 20 maybe 30 yards of hunting space, away from him, though the woods come alive with animal noises. Reassured by the periodic whistles, I allow myself to drift further away, and soon have two rabbits and a fat squirrel show for it. I decide it's enough, I can set snares and maybe get some fish. With PETA's roots, this will be enough for now. I travel short distance back, I realize we haven't exchanged signals in a while. While! Uh-oh! Um, when my whistle receives no response, I run. I no time to find the pack, a neat pile of roots beside it. The sheets of plastic have been laid on the ground, where the sun can reach the single layer, layer of berries and covers. Where is he? Pete, I call in a panic. Pete, turn to the rest of the brush and almost send an arrow through him. Fortunately, I pull my bow at the last second and it sticks to an oak trunk to his left. He jumps back, flinging a hand of berries in the foliage. My fury comes out of anger. What are you doing? You're not supposed to be here, not running around the woods. Found some berries down by the stream, he says, clearly confused my outburst. I whistle, why didn't you whistle back? I snap to him. I didn't hear the whistle the water's too loud, I guess, he says. He crosses and puts his hand on my shoulder. That's when I feel that I'm trembling. I thought cats were killed I almost shout. No, I'm fine. Peter wraps his arm around me, I don't respond. Katniss? I push away, trying to sort out my feelings. If two people agree on a signal, they can stay in rank, because if one doesn't answer, they're in trouble, alright? Alright, he says. Alright. That's what happened with Rue, and I watched her die, I say. I turn away from him and go to the pack and open a fresh bottle of water, although I'm still I though I still have some in mind. But I'm not ready to forgive him. I notice the food, the rolls, and the apples are untouched, but someone's definitely picked up part of the cheese. And you ate without me. I didn't really care, I just wanted something else to be mad about. What? No, I didn't. Oh, and I suppose the apples uh, ate the cheese? I don't know what they ate the cheese, Peter says slowly and distinctly, as if trying not to lose his temper. But it wasn't me. I've been down by a stream collecting berries. Would you care for some? I would, actually, but I don't want to relent too soon. I do walk over and look at them. This type I haven't seen before. No, I have, but it's not the arena. These aren't Rue's berries, although they resemble them. Nor do they match anything I learned about in training. I lean down and scoop a few, rolling them to my fingers. <clears throat> my father's voice comes back to me. Not these, Katniss. Never these. They're nightlock. You'll be dead before they reach your stomach. Then the cannon fires. I whip around, expecting Peter to collapse to the ground, but he only raises his eyes. The hovercraft appears in a hundred yards away or so. What's left, what's left of Foxface's emancipated body is lifted up into the air. I can see the red glint of her hair in the sunlight. I should have known the moment I saw the missing cheese. Peter has me by the arm, pushing me toward the tree. Climb, he'll be here in a second. We stand for a better chance of fighting him from above. I stop him, suddenly calm. No, Peter, she's your kill, not Kato's. What? I haven't even seen her since the first day. How could I have killed her? In answer, I hold out the berries. Dang, so he accidentally killed somebody. What? Peter, you're a murderer. <clears throat> anyway, that was really dramatic. All right, chapter 24. Let's continue. It takes a while to explain the situation to Peta. How Foxy stole the food from the supply before I blew it up. How she tried to take enough to stay alive, but not enough that anyone would notice it. How she couldn't question safety of berries we were preparing to eat ourselves. I wonder how she figured us out, says Peta. My fault. I guess if I'm as loud as you say. We're about, we're about as hard as follow as a herd of cattle, but I tried to be kind. And she's very clever, Peta. Well, she was, until you outfoxed her. Not on purpose. Doesn't seem fair somehow. I mean, we would have both been dead, too, if she hadn't eaten the berries. First, he checks himself. No, of course you wouldn't. You recognized them, didn't you? I give a nod. We call them Nightlock. Even the name sounds deadly, he says. I'm sorry, Katniss. I really thought they were the same ones you gathered. Don't apologize. It just means we're one step closer to home, right? I ask. I'll get rid of the rest, Peter says. He gathers the sheet of blue plastic, careful to trap the berries inside, and goes to toss them in the woods. Wait, I cry. Find the leather pouch that belongs to the boy from District 1 and fill it with a few handfuls of berries in the plastic. They fool foxes. Maybe they can fool Kato as well. Chasing us somehow, we can act like we accidentally dropped the pouch, and if he eats them, 
Then, hello, this week 12, says Peter. That's it, I say securing the pouch on my belt. He'll know where we are now, says Peter. If he was anywhere near and saw that hovercraft, he'll know we killed her and that and come after us. Peter's right, this could be the opportunity Kat has been waiting for. But even if we run now, there's, um, there's the meat to cook and our fire will let another signal of where our whereabouts. Let's make a fire right now. I begin to gather branches and brush. Are you ready to face him? Peter asks. I'm ready to eat. Better to cook our food while we have the chance. If he knows where we are, he'll Ooh. If he knows we're here, he knows. But he also knows where there's two of us. It probably assumes that we were hunting Foxface. Which means you're recovered, and the fire means we're not hiding. We're inviting him here. Would you show up? I ask. Maybe not, he says. Peter's a whiz with fires, coxing a blaze out of the damp wood. In no time I have the rabbits and squirrels roasting. The woods the roots wrapped in leaves, baked in the coal coal. <clears throat> we take turns gathering greens and keeping a keeping a watchful watch for cat. But as anticipated, he doesn't make an appearance. When the foods cook, uh, when the foods cook, I pack most. I pack most of it up, leaving us each a rabbit lay. A rabbit. Wow, this is not my night today. But a rabbit leg to eat. <clears throat> I can't climb like that. Whoa! I just skip. Okay, don't mind me. I'm just skipping everything. Which is just, you know, that's just on brand for me, honestly. <clears throat> okay. I want to move higher into the woods, climb a good tree, and make a camp for the night. But Peter resists. I can't climb like you, Katniss, especially with my leg. And I don't think I could ever fall asleep 50 feet above the ground. Not to stay in the open, Peter, I say. Can't we just go back to the cave, he asks. Since near water and it's easy to defend. I sigh. Several more hours of walking, or should I say crashing, through the woods to reach the area we've just had to leave in the morning to hunt. Peter didn't ask for much. He's followed my instructions all day, and I'm sure if things reversed, he wouldn't make me spend that night in a tree. It dawns on me that I have been very nice to Peter today, nagging him about how loud he was, screaming at him over disappearing. The playful romance we sustained in the cave had disappeared out in the open, under the hot sun, with the threat of Kata looming over us. Hamish had probably just about had it with me. As for the audience, reach up and give him a kiss. Sure, let's go back to the cave. Looks pleased and relieved. Well, that was easy. Work my arrow out of the oak, careful not to damage the shaft. These arrows are food, safety, and life itself now. We toss a bunch more wood on the fire. It should be sending off smoke for a few hours, although I doubt Kato assumes anything at this point. When we reach the stream, I see the water has dropped considerably and moves at its old leisurely pace. So I suggest we walk back in it. Pete is happy to oblige, and since he's a lot quieter in water on land, it's a steadily good idea. <clears throat> it's a long walk back to the cave, though even going downwards, even with the rabbit to give us a boost, we're both exhausted by our hike today and still way too underfed. I keep my bow loaded both for Kato and any fish I might see. The stream seems strangely empty of creatures. By the time we reach our destination, our feet are dragging and the sun sits low on the horizon. We fill up our water bottles and climb the little slope to our den. It's not much, but out here in the wilderness, it's the closest thing we have to a home. It will be warmer than a tree, too, because it provides some shelter from the wind that has begun to blow steadily from the west. I set up a good dinner out. I set up a good dinner, but halfway through, Peter begins to nod off. After days of inactivity, the hunt has taken its toll. I order him into the sleeping bag and set aside the rest of his food for when he wakes up. He drops off immediately. I put the sleeping bag to his chin and kiss his forehead, not for the audience, but for me, because I'm so grateful that he's still here, not dead by the stream, as I thought. So glad I don't have to face Kato alone. Brutal, bloody Kato, who can snap a neck with a twist of his arms, who has the power to overcome Thresh, who has had it out for me since the beginning. He probably has, has, has a special hatred for me ever since I outscored him in training. A boy like Peter would simply shrug that off, but I have a feeling it drove Kato to distraction, which is not that hard. I think this ridiculous reaction to find the supplies blown up. 
The others were upset, of course, but he was completely unhinged. I wonder now if Kato might not be entirely sane. Sky lights up with a seal, and I watch Flockface shine in the sky, then disappear from the world forever. He hasn't said it, but I don't think Peter felt good about killing her, even if it was essential. I can't pretend I'll miss her, but I have to admire her. My guess is that if they'd given us some sort of test, she would have been the smartest out of all the tributes. If, in fact, we'd have been setting up a trap for her, I bet she'd sense it and avoid the berries. It was Peter's own ignorance that brought her down. I'd spent so much time making sure I don't underestimate my opponents that I've forgotten just as well. Just dangerous to overestimate them as well. <clears throat> That brings me back to Kato, but while I think that I have a sense of Foxface, who she was and how she operated, he's a little more slippery. Powerful, well-trained, but smart? I don't know. Not like she was and utterly lacking the control Foxface demonstrated. I believe Kato could easily lose his judgment in a fit of rage. Not that I can make feel superior on that point. I think of the moment I sent the arrow flying to the apple in the pig's mouth when I was, in the, when I was so enraged. Maybe I do understand Kato better than I think. Despite the fatigue on my body, my mind's alert, so I let Peter sleep long past our usual switch. In fact, a soft gray day has begun to when I shake his shoulder. He looks out almost in alarm. I slept the whole night. That's not fair, Katniss. You should have woken me up. I stretch and bury down in this bag. I'll sleep now, looking if anything interesting happens. Apparently nothing does, because when I open my eyes, bright hot afternoon light gleams the rock. Any sign of our friend? I ask. Peter shakes his head. No, he's keeping a disturbingly low profile. How long do you think we'll have before the game makers drive us together? I ask. Well, Foxface died almost a day ago, so there's plenty of time for the audience to bet, place bets and get bored. Because it could happen at any moment, says Peter. Yeah, I have a feeling today's the day, I say. I sit up and look at the peaceful terrain. I wonder how they'll do it. Peter remains silent. There's not really any good answer. Well, until they do, no sense in wasting a hunting day. But we should probably eat as much as we can hold, just in case we run into trouble, I say. Peter packs our gear while, I'll lay, while I lay out a big meal. The rest of the rabbits, roots, and greens, the rolls spread out in the last bit of the cheese. The only thing I leave in reserve is the squirrel and the apple. By the time we're done, all that's left is a piece of rabbit bone. My hands are greasy, which only adds to my growing feeling of rubberiness. Maybe we don't bathe daily in the steam, but we keep cleaner than I have of late. Except for my feet, which have walked in the stream and covered in a layer of grime. Leaving the cave has a sense of finality about it. I don't think there'll be another night in the arena somehow. One way or another, dead or alive, I have the feeling I'll escape it today. I give the rocks a pat goodbye. We head down the stream to wash up. I can feel my skin itching for the cool water. I may do my hair and braid it back wet. I'm wondering if we might even be able to give our clothes a quick scrub before I reach the stream. Or what used to be the stream. Now it's only a bone-dry bet. Put my hand down and feel it. Not even a little damp. They must have drained it while we slept, I say. A fear of the cracked tongue, aching body, and fuzzy mind brought on my previous dehydration creeped into my consciousness. Our bottles and skin are fairly full, but with two drinking and this hot sun, it won't take long to deplete them. The lake says Peter, that's where they want us to go. Maybe the pond's the last time I say, hopefully. We can check, he says, but he's just humoring me. I'm humoring myself because I know that, that I'll know what I find when we return to the pond where I soak my leg. A dusty, gaping mouth of a hole. We make the trip anyway, just to confirm what we've already known. You're right, they're driving us to the lake, I say, where there's no cover, where we're guaranteed a bloody fight to the death with nothing to block their view. Do you want to go straight away or wait until the water's tapped out? Let's go now while we still have food and rest. Let's just go end this thing, he says. I nod. It's funny. I feel almost as if the first day of the games again, that I'm in the same position. 21 tributes are dead, but I still have yet to kill Kato. And really, wasn't he the one to kill? Now it seems the other tributes were just minor obstacles, distraction, keeping us from the real battle of the games. Kato and me. <clears throat> but no. There's the boy waiting beside me. I feel his arm wrapped around me. Two against one. Should be a piece of cake, he says. Next time we eat, it'll be in the capital, I answer. You bet it will. 
We stand there a while, locked in an embrace, feeling each other, the sunlight, the rustle of leaves at our feet. Then inside of where we break apart and head down the lake. I don't care now that Peta's footfall sent rodents scurrying, making a bird wing, uh, take wing. We have to fight cats out, and I just as and just as I soon whoa, and just as soon as I do it on the plane. But I doubt I'll have the choice. If the game makers want us in the open, then in the open we will be. We will stop to rest for a few moments under the trees where the uh, careers trap me. The husk of the trapper decker nest, beaten to a pulp by the heavy rain and dried in the burning sun, confirms the location. It, um, I touch it with the tip of my boot and it dissolves into dust that it quickly carried off by the breeze. I can't help looking up at the trees where Rue secretly perched, waiting to save my life. Tracker jackers, glimmers, bloated body, the terrifying hallucinations. Let's move on and say I wanted to escape the darkness that surrounded this place. Peta doesn't object. Given our late start to the day, when we reach the plane, it's already early evening. There's no sign of Kato, no sign of anything except the gold cornicorn glowing in the slated sun rays. Just in case Kato decides to pull a fox face on us, we circle the cornicorn to make sure it's empty. Then obediently, as if Flogman instructed, we cross the lake and fill up our water containers. Found the shrinking sun. We don't want to fight him after dark. There's only one pair of glasses. Peter gravely squeezes my uh, drops of iodine into the water. Maybe that's what he wants, was waiting for? What do you want to do? Go back to the cave? Either that or find a tree, but let's give him another half hour or so. Then we'll take cover, I answer. We sit by the lake in full light, uh, full sight. There's no point in hiding now. In the trees at the edge of the plane, we can see the mockingjays flitting around, bouncing melodies back and forth between them like brightly colored balls. I open my mouth and sing out Rue's four-note tune. Do, 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 do. Or I guess it's more like a whistle. Do. I'm not going to whistle. Wait. We'll have to see. Or, no. I know. I know that's what it was. It was confirmed, so that's that was a tune. I think. I don't know. Anyway, um, I can feel them pause, curious at the sound of my voice, listening for more. I repeat the notes in silence. First, one mockingjay throws at the tune back, then another, and the whole world comes alive with the sound. Just like your father says, Peta. My fingers run that pin on my sh- run through the pin of my shirt. <clears throat> that's Ruth's song. I say. I think they remember it. Music swells and recognizes the brilliance of it. As the notes overlap, they complement with each other, forming a lovely, unearthly harmony. It was a sound one thanks to Rue that sent the orchard workers of District 11 home each night. Someone started at quitting time, I wonder, now that she's dead. For a while, I just closed my eyes, listening, mesmerized by the beauty of the song. And something begins to disrupt the music. Runs got, run, runs cut off a jagged, imperfect lines. Just this dissonance notes interspace with the melody. The Mockingjay's voices rise in a shrieking uh, cry of alarm. We're on our feet. Peter's widening his knife and poised, and me poised to shoot. When Cattle smashes through the trees and bearing down on us, he has no spear. In fact, his hands are empty. He runs straight at us. My first arrow hits his chest and inexplicably falls aside. He's got some kind of body armor. I shout at Peter. Just in time, too, because Cattle was upon us. I raised myself, but he rockets right between us with no attempt to check his speed. I can tell from his panting the sweat pouring off his purplish face that he's been running hard for a long time. Not towards us, from something. But what? My eyes can go just in time as I see the first creature leap into the flame. Then turning away, I see another half dozen join. Then I'm stumbling blindly after Kata with no thought of anything but to save myself. Save yourself from what, Katniss? Tell me! Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's the end of chapter 24. We're on chapter 25. Oh my goodness. We're gonna do it. We're gonna finish the book today. Woo! <clears throat> okay. But yeah, you just stopped on that. So that's why I'm like, tell me, Katniss, what is it? Okay, let us begin. <clears throat> Mutations. No questions about it. I've never seen these mutts, but they're no natural-born animal. They resemble a huge wolf, but what wolf lands then balances easily on its hind legs? What wolf waves the rest of the pack forward with its front paws as those has a wrist? These things I can see at a distance. Up close, I'm sure there are more menacing attributes will be revealed. 
Cass has made a beeline for the corner corner without question. I follow him. If he thinks this is the safest place, who am I to argue? Besides, even if I could make it to the trees, it would be impossible for Peter to outrun it with his flesh. Peter, my hands have just landed on the metal with the point of the corner corner when I remember I'm part of a team. He's about 15 yards behind me, hobbling as fast as he can, but the mutts are closing in on him. I send an arrow to pack and one goes down, but I have plenty to take its place. Peter's waving at me with the horn. Go, Katniss, go! He's right. I can't protect either of us on the ground. Start climbing, scaling the corner corner on my hands and feet. The pure gold surface have been designed to resemble the woven horn that we fill in the harvest, so they're a little rigid and seems to get a decent hold on. Back through day in the arena, us on the metal feels hot and blistered in my hands. Cut the lies on the side, the very top of the horn, 20 feet above the ground. Gasping to catch his breath, he gagged over the side. Now's my chance to finish him off. I stop midway up the corn and load another arrow. He's not about to let it fly. I hear Peter's cry. I twist around and see he just reached the tail. The mutts are right on his heel. Climb, I yell. Peter starts up hammered, but not his leg. Ooh, starts up hammered, hampered, but not by his leg, but the knife in his hand. Shoot an arrow down the throat of the first mutt and place his paw on the metal. As it dies, the creature lashes out inadvertently opening the gash. On Peter's opinion, that's when I'm gonna look at the cloth, four inch and clearly razor sharp. Peter puts, uh, ooh, Peter reaches my feet and I grab his arm and pull him along. Then I remember cats are waiting on the top and whip around, but he's doubled over in cramps and apparently more preoccupied with the mutts than us. He coughs something, um, unintelligible, and then snuffling, growling stuff comes from the mutt isn't helping. What? I shout at him. He said, "Can't they climb?" Answers Peter, drawing my focus back to face the horn. The mutts are beginning to assemble. As they join together, they raise up again to stand easily on their back legs, giving them an eerily human quality. Each has a thick coat, some of the fur is straight and sleek, others curly and the others, and colors vary from jet black to what I can only describe as blonde. There's something else about them, something that makes my hair rise on my back and my neck, but I can't put my fingers on it. <clears throat> they put their snouts on the horns, sniffing and tasting the metal, uh, scraping paws over the surface, and then making a high-pitched yipping sound to each other. This must be how to communicate because the pack backs up it to make room. The one of them, a good-sized mutt with his silky waves of blonde hair, takes a running start and leaps onto the horn. Its back leg must be incredibly powerful because it lands a mere ten feet below us. Its pink lips curled back in a snarl. For a moment, it just hangs there, and in that moment, I realize what else, what else unsettled me about the mutt. The green eyes glaring at me are unlike any dog or wolf, any canine I've seen. They're unmistakably human, and that revelation has barely registered when I notice a collar with the initial one on it. Wait, wait a minute. Oh my gosh. Sorry. I was, <laughs> I realized it. I just realized. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to read it. <laughs> I noticed a collar with the number one and it's inlaid in the jewels and the whole horrible thing hits me. The blonde hair, the green eyes, the number, it's glimmer. Ah, so they're using the dead trivia that died and now they're making them into mutations. No, that's inhumane. Oh, that sucks. Oh no, that means that Rue's going to be one and threat. <gasps> oh, that's evil. That's evil. <clears throat> a shriek escaped my lips and I'm having trouble holding the arrow in place. I have to, I have been waiting to fire only to wear my dwindling surprise of arrow. Waiting to see if the creature can in fact climb. But now, even though the mutts have begun to slide backwards and able to find any perches on the metal, even though I can hear the slow screeching of the claws like nails on the on the blackboard, I fire it into the throat. The body twitches and flops the ground with a thud. Katniss, I feel Peter grip on my arm. It's her I get out. Who? My head snaps from side to side and I examine the pack, taking the various sizes and colors. The small one with the red coat and amber eye, fox face, and there, ashen hair and hazel eyes from the boy from District 9 who died as we struggled for the backpack. And worst of all, the smallest mutt with dark, glossy fur, huge brown eyes, and a collar that reads a love in a woven straw, teeth bared in hatred. Rue. What is it, Katniss? Peter shakes my shoulder. It's them. It's all of them. The others. Rue and Foxface and all the other tributes I choke out. <clears throat> I hear Peter gasp and recognize him. 
What do they do to them? You don't think those could be their real eyes. Their eyes leads my worries. What about their brains? Have they been given the real tribute memories? Have they been programmed to hate our faces, particularly because we have survived and they were so callously murdered? And the ones who we actually killed, do they believe they're inventing their own deaths? Before I can get this out, the mutts begin a new assault on the horn. They split into two groups at the side of the horn and are using these powerful hiding quarters to launch themselves at us. A pair of teeth ring together just inches from my hand when I hear Peter cry out. I feel the yank of his body and the heavy weight of a boy and a mutt pulling me over the side. If not for the grip on my arm, he'd be on the ground. But as it is, it takes all my strength to keep us both on the curved back of the horn, and more tributes are coming. Kill it, Peter, kill it, I'm shouting, and although I can't quite see what's happening, I know he must have stabbed the thing because of pull lessons. I'm able to haul him back to the horn, where we drag ourselves towards the top of where the lesser of two evil awaits. Katu has still not regained his feet, but his breathing is slow, and now I know soon he'll recover enough to come for us, to hurl us over the side to our death. Our armor bow, but the arrow ends up taking out month that can only be thrush. Who else could jump so high? I feel a moment's relief because we must finally be above the mutt's line, and I'm turning back to face Kata when Peter's jerk from my side. Come on, Peter. Let's, like, let's, like, you know, let's, like, give this team a little bit of a fighting chance, you know? <sighs> okay, let's keep going. <clears throat> sure the pack has got him until his blood splatters on my face. Kato stands before me, uh, almost at the lip of the horn, holding Pita in some kind of headlock, cutting off his air. Pita's clawing at Cato's arm weakly as if he's confused over whether it's more important to breathe or try and steam the gushing blood from the gaping hole and the mutts left to his calf. I am one of my last two arrows at Cato's head, knowing I'll have no effect on his trunks or limbs, which I can now see are clothed in a tight-skinned, flesh-colored mesh. Some high-grade body armor for the Capitol. Was that what was in the pack of the feast? Body armor to defend against my arrows, while he neglected to send a face guard. Cattle just laughs. Shoot me, and he goes down with me. He's right. If I take him out and he falls down so much, Peter sure to die with him. But we just steal me. I can't shoot Cattle without killing Peter. He can't kill Peter without guaranteeing an arrow in his brain. We sound like statues, both of us seeking it out. My mouth is strained so tightly, they feel like they might snap at any moment. My teeth clench at the breaking point. The mutts go silent, and the only thing I hear is the blood pounding in my good ear. Peter's lips are turning blue. If I don't do something quickly, he'll die of as- Oh, I'm not pronouncing that. <laughs> Asplifen, Asplaxen, As. I think he's just gonna die of like not breathing. So we're gonna say he just he'll just die of lack of oxygen. That's what we're gonna call it. Then I'll have lost him, and Kato will probably use his body as a weapon against me. In fact, I'm sure that this is Kato's plan because while he stopped laughing, his lips are sent on a triumphant smile, as if a last ditch effort. Uh, fingers dripping with blood from his leg up to Kato's arm. Instead of trying to wrestle his way free, his four fingers veer off and make a deliberate X on the back of Kato's hand. Kato realizes what it means exactly one second after I do it. I can tell by the way the smile drops from his lips, but it's only one second too late because by that time my arrow is piercing his hand. He cries out and reflectively releases Peta, who slams back against him. For a horrible moment, I think they're both going over. I dive forward, just catching hold of Peta as Kato loses his footing on the blood-sick horn and plummets to the ground. We hear him hit the ground, the, ooh, the air living his body on impact, and then the mutts attack him. Peter and I hold on to each other, waiting for the cannon, waiting for the competition to finish, waiting to be released. But it doesn't happen. Not yet, because this is the climax of the Hunger Games, and the audience expects a show. I don't watch, but I hear the snarls, the growls, the howls of pain for both human and beast cattle takes on the mutts' path. I can't understand what he can... Uh, ooh. Can't understand how he can be surviving until I remember the body armor protecting him from ankle to neck. And I realized what a long night this could be. <clears throat> Kato must have a knife or a sword or something, too. Because uh, something he had hidden in his clothes, because on occasion there's a death scream of a mutt, sound of metal on metal as the blades collide with the golden horns. 
The combat moves on the side of the corny corn, and I know Captain must be attempting the one maneuver that could save his life to make his way back around to the tail of the horn and rejoin us. But in the end, despite his remarkable strength and skill, he's simply overpowered. I don't know how long it has been, maybe an hour or so when Captain hits the ground, and we hear the must dragging him, dragging him back to the corny corn. Now they've thrown him off, I think, but there's still no cannon. Night falls and the anthem plays, and there's no pitch of Captain in the sky, only the faint moans coming from the metal uh, beneath us. The icy air blowing across the plane reminds me of the games are not over and may not be for who knows how long until there's no guarantee of victory. I turn my attention to Pete and discover his leg is bleeding as badly as ever. All our supplies are packed, remain down by the lake where we abandoned them when we were fled when we fled by the muds. <clears throat> I have no bandage, nothing to staunch the, the flow of blood from his calf. Although I'm shaking in the biting wind, I rip off my jacket and remove my shirt and zip back up the jacket swiftly as possible. That brief explosion set my chattering beyond control. Peter's face is gray in the pale moonlight, and I make him lie down before I probe his wound. Warm, slippery blood runs over my fingers. Bandage will not be enough. I see my mother tie a tornet a handful of times and try to replicate it. I cut free a sleeve from my shirt, wrap it twice around his leg just under his knee, and tie a half knot. I don't know how to stick, so I try to take my remaining arrows and insert it into the knot, twisting as tightly as I dare. Risky business. Peter may end up losing his life. When I weigh this against him losing his life, what alternative do I have? I bandage the wound the rest of my shirt and lie down with him. Don't go to sleep, I tell him. I'm not sure it's exactly a medical protocol, but I'm terrified that if he drifts off, he'll never wake up again. Are you cold? He asks. He unzips his jacket and I press against him as he fastens it around me. It's a bit warmer, showing our body heat out of a double layer of jackets, but the night is young. The temperature will continue to drop, even though I can feel the corny corn, which is burned so when I first climbed it, slowly turning to ice. Cats may win this thing yet, I whispered to Peter. Don't you believe it, he says, pulling my pulling up my hood, but he's shaking harder than I than I am. The next hours are the worst of my life. Some uh which of the next hours are the worst in my life, which, if you think about it, is saying something. The cold will be torturous enough, but the real nightmare is listening to cats moaning, begging and finally just whimpering the mutts working away at him. After a very short time, I don't care who he is or what he's done. All I want is for suffering to end. Why don't you just kill him, I say to Peter. Oh, yeah, why Why don't they just kill him, I ask Peter. You know why, he says, and pulls me closer to him. And I do. No viewer could turn away from the show now. From the game maker's point of view, this is the final word in entertainment. It goes on and on and on, eventually completely consumes my mind, blocking out memories and hopes of tomorrow, erasing everything but the present, which I begin to believe will never change. There will never be anything but cold and fear and agonized sounds, the boy dying at the horn. Peter begins to doze off now, and each time he does, I find myself yelling his name louder and louder, because if he goes, he dies on me now. I know I'll be completely insane. He's fighting it probably more for me than he is for him, and it's hard because unconsciousness would be its own form of escape. But the adrenaline pumping through my body would never allow me to follow him, so I can't let him go. I just can't. The only indication of the passage of time lies in the heavens, the subtle shifts of the moon. So Peter begins pointing it out to me, insisting I acknowledge his process, and sometimes just for a moment I feel a flicker of hope before the agony of night engulfs me again. Finally, I hear him whisper the sun is rising. I open my eyes upon the stars fading in the pale light of dawn. I can see, too, now how bloodless Peter's face has become, how little time he has left, and I know I still have to get him back to Capitol. Still, no cannon has fired. Because my good ear against the horn, I can make it out. Cat's voice. I think he's close enough, Katniss. Can you shoot him? Uh, Peter asks. If you knew the mouth, I may be able to take him out. It would be an act of mercy at this point. My last arrow's in your tornet, I say. Make it count, says Peter, unzipping his jacket, letting me loose. So I free the arrow, tying the tornet back as tightly as my frozen fingers can imagine. I rub my hands together, trying to regain circulation. When I crawl over the lip of the horn and hang over the edge, I feel like Peter's hand grip me for support. Tasting me almost find catching the dim life with the blood, and the raw hunk of meat that used to be my enemy makes a sound. 
And I know what the mouth is saying. I think the word he's trying to say is please. Pity, not vengeance, sends my arrow flying to a skull. Peter pulled me back, uh, back up, bow in hand, quiver empty. Did you get him? He whispers. The cannon fire in an answer. Let me one, Katniss. He says hollowly. Hurry for us. For, hurry for us. I get out, but there's no joy of victory for me. A hole opens up in the plane, and just as one key, the remaining amounts bound towards it, disappearing as the earth closes above them. We wait for the hovercraft to take Katniss' remains for the, the trumpets. A victory that should fall, but nothing happens. Hey, I shout in the air. What's going on? The only response is the chatter of waking birds. Maybe it's the body. Maybe we have to move away from it, says Peter. Try to remember. Do you have to distance yourself from dead tribute on the final kill? My brain is too muddled to be sure, but what else could, the re- could be the reason for the delay? <clears throat> okay, I think you could... Okay, think you can make it to the lake? I ask. I think I better try, says Peter. We inch down the trail of the horn and fall onto the ground. The stiffness in my limbs is as bad as if... Ooh, it's just getting... We're so close. I'm so excited. But I'm also scared. I'm scared. Oh, no. Okay, let's continue. <clears throat> if the stiffness in my limbs is this bad, how can Peter even move? I rise first, swinging and bending my arms and legs until I think I can help him up. Somehow we make it back to the lake. I scoop up my handful of cold water for Peter and bring a second to my lip. The balcony gives a long, low whistle, and tears of relief fill my eyes as the hovercraft appears and takes Katniss' body away. Now they will take us. Now we can go back home. But again, there's no response. What are they waiting for? I says Peter. Between the loss of the Tourette and the effort it took to get to the lake, his wound has opened up again. I don't know, I say. Whatever the holdup is, I can't watch him lose any more blood. I get up and find a stick, but almost immediately come across the arrow that's bounced off Katniss' body. Armor. It will do as well as the other arrow. I stoop to pick it up. Claudius Temple Smith booms into the arena. Greetings, the final contestants of the 74th Hunger Games. This earlier revision has been revoked. What? <laughs> Close examination of the rule book has been disclosed that only one winner may be allowed. Good luck and may the odds ever be in your favor. Whoa! That's foul. What? Oh my goodness. There's a small burst of static and then nothing more. I stare at Peter in disbelief as the truth sings him. They never intended to let us both live. This had all been divided by the game makers to guarantee the most dramatic showdown in history. Like a fool, I bought into it. If you think about it, it's not just that surprising, he says softly. I watch as he painfully makes his way to his feet. Then he's moving towards me as if to pull. Oh, working uh, as if to pull the knife from his belt. Before, I can even, before I'm even aware of my actions, my bow is located, loaded with the arrow pointed straight to his heart. Peter raises his eyebrows, and I see the knife has already left his hand on his way to the lake, where it plashes the water. I drop my weapon and take a step back, my face burning with what can only be in shame. No, do it, Peter lumps towards me and thrusts the arrow, the weapon back into my hands. I can't, I say. I won't. Do it before they send those, those mutts back or something. I don't want to die like Kato did, he says. Then you shoot me, I say seriously. You shoot me and go home and live with it. And just as I say that, I know they're desperate there. Um, I know desperate now would be the easier of the two. You know I can't, Peter says, discarding the weapon. Fine, I'll go first anyway. He leans down, rips the bandage off his leg, eliminating the final barrier between his blood and the earth. No, you can't kill yourself, I say. I'm on my knees, desperately plastering the bandage back to his wound. Katniss, he says, I would want, I would want what, it's what I want. <clears throat> not leaving me here alone, I say. Because if he dies, I'll never go home. Not really. I'll spend the rest of my life in this area trying to think of my way out. Listen, he says, pulling me up to his feet. Uh, we both know they have to make a victor. It's only one of us. Please take it for me. And he goes on about how he loves me and will life be without me. But I've stopped listening because his previous words were trapped in my head, thrashing desperately around. We both know they have a victor. We both know they have to have a victor. Yes, they have to have a victor. Without a victor, the whole thing could blow up in the game maker's face. They'd have filled the capital. Might possibly be executed slowly and painfully while the cameras broadcast in every screen of the capital. 
If Speed and I were to both die, or they thought that we were, hmm, tea. My fingers fumble with the pouch on my belt, freezing it. I mean, freeing it. Peter sees it and his hands clasp my wrist. No, I won't let you. Trust me, I whisper. He holds my gaze and for a moment then lets me go. I listen to the top of my pouch and pour out a few spoonfuls of berries into his palm. Then I fill my own. On the count of three, he leans down and kisses me once, very gently. The count of three, he says, we stand, we stand, we, we stand, our backs pressed together, our empty hands locked tight. Hold them out. I want everyone to see, he says. I put my fingers and the dark berries glisten in the sun. I give Peter's hand one last squeeze and one goodbye as we begin counting. One, maybe I'm wrong. Two, maybe they don't care we don't die. Three, it's too late to change my mind. I lift my hands to my mouth, taking one last look at the world. The berries have been past my lips. The trumpets begin to blare. Frantic uh, voice of Claudius Temples must shouts from above. Stop, stop, ladies and gentlemen. I'm pleased to present the victory of the 74th Hunger Games. Katniss Everdeen and Peter Millard. I mean, <laughs> yeah, Peter Mellark, Peter Mellark. I give you a tribute to District 12. I spew the berries out of my mouth, wiping my tongue with the end of my shirt to make sure no juices remain. Peter pulls me to the lake where we both flush our mouths out with water, then claps into each other's arms. You didn't swallow any, I ask him? He shakes his head. You? Guess I'd, I guess I'd be dead now if I did, I say. I can see his lips moving in reply, but I can't quite hear over the roar of the crowd in the Capitol that they're playing live over the speakers. Pepercraft materializes overhead, and two letters drop down, only there's no way I'm letting it go of PETA. Keep one around, my, around him as I help him up. We each place a foot on the first rung of the ladder. The electric current freezes us in place, and the time I'm glad because I'm not really sure PETA can hang on for the whole ride. And since my eyes were looking down, I can see while our muscles are mobile, nothing is preventing the blood from draining out of Peter's leg. Sure enough, the minute the door closes behind us and the current stops, he slumps to the floor unconscious. My fingers are still gripping the back of his jacket so tightly that when they take him away, tears it tear is leaving me with a handful of white of black fabric. It's just I'm so close. <laughs> I have like twenty pages left. 20 pages left of this book. And it's like I had no idea that was gonna happen. That's like tea you know like tea i'm like what is going on anyway as always we're gonna continue we're gonna this is probably gonna go over an hour because i just want to finish it and we're so 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 close so we're gonna keep going um i'm rambling again but let's keep going <clears throat> my fingers are are uh doctors in a sterile white mask and gloves right prepared to operate going to action Pete is still pale and still on a silver plate tubes and wires bringing out of him Every which way, for a moment, I forget we're out of the game. I see the doctor with just one more threat, one more pack of mutes, uh, mutts designed to kill him. Petrify, I lunge for him, but I'm caught and thrust back to another room, and a glass door seals us. I pound on the glass, screaming my head off. Everyone ignores me except for some capital attendants who appear behind me and offer me a beverage. I slump it down on the floor, my face against the door, staring uncomprehendedly at the crystal glass in my hand. Icy cold filled with orange juice, a straw with a frilly white collar. How wrong it looks in my bloody, filthy hands with its dirt caked nails and scars. My mouth waters at the smell, but I place it carefully on the floor, not trusting anything so clean and pretty. Through the glass, I see the doctors working feverishly on PETA. Their brows crease from concentration. I see the flow of liquids pumping through the tubes, watch a wall of dials and lights that mean nothing to me. I'm not sure, but I think his heart stops twice. It's like being home again when they bring in the hopelessly mangled person from the mine's explosion or the woman in her third day of labor or the famished child struggling against pneumonia and my mother in prim. They were the same look on their faces. Now is the time to run away in the woods to hide in the trees until the patient is long gone in another part of the scene. Uh, the hammers make the coffins. But I'm held here by the covercraft walls in the same force that holds loved ones from dying. How often I've seen them ringed around the table and their thoughts. Why don't they leave? Why don't, why do they watch? Why do they stay and watch? 
And now I know, it's because you have no choice. I started when I catch someone staring at me, only for a few inches away, and I realized my own face reflecting back in the glass. Wild eyes, hollow cheeks, my hair in a tangled mat. Rabid, feral, mad, no wonder everyone's keeping a safe distance from me. Next thing I know, we're, ha- we're landed back on the roof of the training center, and they're taking PETA, but leaving me behind the doors. I start hurling myself against this glass, shrieking, and I think I just catch a glimpse of pink hair. It must be Effie. It has to be Effie coming to my rescue. A needle jutting from behind. When I wake, I'm afraid to move at first. The entire ceiling glows with a soft yellow light, allowing me to see that I'm in a room containing just my bed. No doors, no windows are visible. The air smells of something sharp and antiseptic. antiseptic. My right arm has several tubes that extend into the wall behind me. I'm naked, but the bedclothes are soothing over my skin. I tentatively lift my left hand over the cover. Not only has it been scrubbed clean and the nails are filed to perfect olive, the scars from my burns are less prominent. I touch my cheek, my lips, and the puckered scar bug my eyebrow, and I'm just running my fingers through my single silken hair when I freeze. I apprehensively rustle the hair from my left ear. No, it was an illusion. I can hear again. I try and sit up, but some sort of wild, restraining band from my waist keeps me from rising more than a few inches. The physical confinement makes me panic and try to pull myself up and wriggle my hips through the band when a portion of the wall slides open and steps in the red-headed a vox girl carrying a tray. The sight of her caused me and I stopped trying to escape. I want to ask her a million questions, but I'm afraid any familiarity would cause her harm. Obviously, I'm being closely monitored. She sets the tray across my thigh and presses something into me, uh, something that raises me to a sitting position. When she dresses my pillow, I risk one question. I say it out loud, as clearly as my rusty voice will allow, uh, so nothing can seem sacred. Did Peta make it? She gives me a nod as she slips the spoon in my hand. Feel the pressure of friendship. I guess she did not wish me dead after all, and Peta has made it. Of course he did, with their expensive equipment here. Still, I hadn't been sure until now. And then the Vox leaves. The door closes noises- noiselessly behind her, and I turn hungrily to the tray. A bowl of clear broth, a small serving of applesauce, and a glass of water. This is it, I think, gradually. Shouldn't my homecoming dinner be a little more spectacular? Um, but I find an effort to finish the spare meal before me. My stomach seems to have shrunk to the size of a chestnut, and I have to wonder how long I've been out because I had no trouble eating a fairly sizable breakfast the last morning in the arena. There usually is a lag in the few days between the end of the competition and the presentation of the victor so that they can put the starving wounded. Uh, put the starving, wounded, mess of person back together somehow. Somewhere, Cinnabon and Portia will be creating a wardrobe for the public appearances. Hamish and Effie will be re- arranging the banquets for our sponsors, reviewing their questions for our final interviews. Back home, District 12 is probably in chaos as they try and organize our homecoming celebration for Pete and me, given that the last one closed 30 years ago. Home, Prim, my mother, Gail, even the thought of Prim's scruffy old cat makes me smile. Soon it will be home. I want to get out of this bed to see Peta and Cinnabon and to find more about what's been going on. And why shouldn't I? I feel fine, but I start to make work my way out of the bed. I feel a cold liquid seep into my veins from one of the tubes and almost immediately lose consciousness. This happens on and off for an indeterminate amount of time. My waking, eating, and even though I resist the impulse to try and escape the bed, being knocked out again. I seem to be in a strange, continual twilight. Only a few things register. The redhead of Vox Girl has not returned since the feeding. My scars are disappearing, and do I imagine it? Or do I hear a man's voice yelling? Not in the capital accent, but in the rougher cadences of home. And I can't help but having a vague, comforting feeling that someone's looking out for me. And finally, the time arrives when I come to, and there's no nothing plugged to my right arm. The restraints around my middle has been removed, and I'm free to move around. I start to sit up, but I'm arrested at the sight of, um, whoopsie, of my hands. <laughs> The skin's perfection, smooth and glowing. Not only are the scars in the arena gone, but those accumulated over the years of hunting have vanished without a trace. My forehead feels like satin. 
where I tried to find the burn on my calf. There's nothing. I slip out of my bed. I slip my legs out of bed, nervous about the how they'll feel to bear my weight. Find them strong and steady. Lying on the floor of the bed is an outfit that makes me flinch. It's what all of us tributes wore in the arena. I stared at it as a bit of who. I stare at it as if it had teeth until I remember that, of course, this is what I will wear to my green my team. I'm dressed in less than a minute and fidget in front of the wall where I know is a door even though I can't see it when suddenly it slides open. I step into a wide deserted hall that appears to have no other doors to it, but it must, and behind one of them must be Peta. Now that I'm conscious and moving, I'm growing more and more anxious about him. He must have all he must be alright for the or the locker wouldn't have said so. But I need to see him for myself. Peta, I call out since there's no one to ask. I hear my name in response, but it's not his voice. It's a voice that provokes the first irritation and eagerness. Effie. I turn to see them all waiting in a big chamber at the end of the hall. Effie, Hamish, and Cinnabon. My feet take off without hesitation. Maybe a victor should be short, should show more restraint, more superiority, especially when she knows that this will be on tape. I don't even care. I run for them, and I surprise myself even when I launch into Hamish's arms first. And he whispers in my ear, Nice job, sweetheart. Doesn't sound sarcastic. Effie's somewhat teary and keeps patting my hair and talking about how he told everyone we were pearls. Cinnabon just hugs me tight and doesn't say anything. And I know his portrait's absent and get... A bad feeling. Where's Portia? Is she with Peta? Is he alright? He's alright, isn't he? I mean, he's alive, I burn out. He's fine. Only they want to do your union live on air at the ceremony, says Haymitch. Oh, that's all I say. The awful moment of thinking Peta's dead again passes. I guess I want to see that for myself. Go with Cinnabon. He has to get you ready, says Haymitch. It's a relief to be alone with Cinnabon and feels protective arm around my shoulder as he guides me away from the cameras down the lobby to the training hall. A training center! Train center. The hospital then is far under underground, even beneath the gym, where the tributes practice tying knots and throwing spears. The window of the lobby has darkened, and a handful of guards stand on duty. No one else is here to see us cross the tribute elevator. Our footsteps um echo in the emptiness, and when we ride up to the twelfth floor, the faces of all the tribute who will never return flash around my mind, and there's a heavy tight space in my chest. When the elevator doors open, Venna oh whoa, Flavis and Octavia engulf me, talking so quickly and aesthetically I can make I can't make out with their words. The sentiment is clear enough though. They are truly thrilled to see me and I'm happy to see them too, although not like I want to, not like I want to see Cinnabon. It's more like in a way one might be glad to see an affectionate trio of pets at the end of a particularly difficult day. They see me into the dining room and I get a real meal, roast beef and peas and soft rolls, though my portions are still being strictly controlled because when I'm out of seconds, I'm refused. No, no, no. They don't want it uh, all coming back up on the stage, says Octavia, but she secretly slips me an extra roll under the table to let me know she's on my side. When we go back to the room, Cinnabon disappears for a while as the prep team gets me ready. Oh, they did a full body polish on you, says Flavius, and it's like not a flaw left on your skin. When I look at my naked body in the mirror, all I can see is how skinny I am. I mean, I'm sure I was worse when I came out of the arena. I can easily count my rib. Take care of all the showering settings for me, and then they go to work on my nails, hair, and makeup when I'm done. Uh, they chatter so continuously that I barely have to reply, which is good since I don't feel very talkative. It's funny because even though they're rattling on about the games, it's about where they were or what they were doing or how they felt at a specific event occurred. I was still in bed. I had just gotten my eyebrows dyed. I swear I nearly fainted. Everything about them, not the dying boys and the girls in the arena. We don't wall around in the games. Uh, we don't wallow around in the games this way in District 12. We grit our teeth and watch because we must and try to get back to business as soon as possible when they're over. To keep from hanging around, hating the prep team, I effectively tune out most of what they're saying. Cinnabon comes in with what appears to be an unassuming yellow dress across his arms. Haven't you given up the whole girl on fire thing, I ask? You tell me, he says, and slips it over my head. 
I immediately notice the padding over my breast, adding curves that hunger has stolen from my body. My hands go to my chest, and I frown. I know it's a Cinnabon before I can eject. The game makers want to alter you surgically. Uh, Hamish had a huge fight with them over it. This was the compromise. He stopped me before I can look at my reflection. Wait, don't get the shoes. Bennett helped me with a pair of flat leather sandals, and I turned to the mirror. I am still the girl on fire. The sheer fabric softly glows. Even the slight movement in the air sends a ripple up my body. By comparison, the chariot costume seems garnished. The interview dress seems to contribute. In this dress, I get the illusion of wearing a candle. What do you think, says Cinnabon? I think it's the best yet, I say. When I manage to pull my eyes away from the flickering fabric, I'm in for something of a shock. My hair is loose, held back by a simple hairband. The makeup rounds and fills the sharp angles of my face. A clear polish cuts my nails. The sleeveless dress is gathered at my ribs, not my waist, largely emanating any help the padding could have on my figure. The hem falls just to my knees. Without heels, you can see my true stature. I look very simply, just like a girl. A young one, 14 at most, and innocent, harmless. Yes, this is a shocking... That it was, it is shocking that Cinnabon had pulled us off. Well, you remember, I've just won the games. This is a very calculated look. Nothing Cinnabon designs is arbitrary. I bite my lips trying to figure out his motivation. Not even something more sophisticated looking, I say. Thought people like this better, he answers carefully. PETA? No, it's not about PETA. It's about the capital and the game makers and the audience. Though I do not yet understand Cinnabon's design, it's a reminder that the games are not quite finished. And beneath his benign des- uh, reply, I sense a warning of something he can't even mention in front of his own team. Take the elevator to the level where we trained. It's customary for the victors and his or her support group to rise from beneath the stage. Step the uh, first, the prep team, followed by the escort. Stylist, the mentor, and finally the victor. Only this year, with two victors who share both an escort and a mentor, the whole thing has to be rethought. By myself, a portable area under the stage, a brand new metal plate has been installed to transport me upwards. You can still see a small pile of sawdust smell fresh paint and smells fresh paint. Cinnabon and the trap team peel off to change in their own costumes and take their positions, leaving me alone. In the gloom, I see a makeshift wall about 10 yards away and soon Pete is behind it. The rumbling of the crowd is still loud. I don't notice Hamish until he touches my shoulder. I bring away a stone, still half in the arena, I guess. Easy, just me. Just to have a look at you. Uh, Hamish says, I hold on my arm and turn once. Good enough. Not much of a compliment. But what, I say. Hamish's eyes shift on my musty space, and he seems to make a decision. But nothing. How about a hug for luck? Okay, this is an odd request from Hamish, but after all, we are victors. Maybe a hug for luck is in order. Only when I pull myself in his arms on... Uh, only when I pull my... Ooh. Only when I put my arms around his neck, I find myself trapped in his embrace. He begins talking very fast, very quietly in my ear, and my hair concealing his lips. Listen up, you're in trouble. Where did the Capitol series about you two showing them up on the arena? One thing they can't stand is being laughed at, and they're the joke of Panam, says Hamish. I feel dread cursing through me now, but I laugh as though Hamish said something completely delightful, because nothing is covering my mouth. So what? Your only defense can be you were so madly in love you weren't responsible for your actions, Hamish pulls back and adjusts my hairband. Got a sweetheart? He could be talking about anything now. Got it, I say. You shall plead this? Don't have to, says Hamish. He's already here there. But you think I'm not? I say taking the opportunity to straighten a bright red bow. Ties Cinnabon must have wrestled onto him. Since when does it matter um, what I think, says Hamish. Better take our places. He leads me to the metal circle. This is your night, sweetheart. Enjoy. He kisses me on the forehead and disappears from the gloom. Tug on my skirt, willing it to be longer, wanting to cover the knocking in my knees. And I realize it's pointless. My whole body is shaking like a leaf. Hopefully this will put down excitement. After all, it's my night. The damp, moldy smell beneath the stage threatens to choke me. A cold, clammy sweat breaks out on my skin, and I can't rid my head of it. 
can't rid myself of the feeling that the boards above me are about to collapse, to bury me alive from the rubble. When I left the arena, when the trumpets played, I was supposed to be safe. But then on, for the rest of my life, but what if Haymitch said it's true, and he's got no reason to lie? Never been to such a dangerous place in my life. It's so much worse than being hunted in the arena. There I could only die. End of the story. But out here, Prim, my mother, Gail, and the other people of District 12, everybody I care about back home can be punished if I can't pull off this girl-driven crazy-by-love scenario, Hamish has suggested. So I still have a chance, though. Funny in the arena, when I poured out those berries, I was only to give the outsmart the game-makers, not how my actions would reflect on the Capitol. But the Hunger Games are their weapon, and you are not supposed to be able to defeat it. So now the Capitol will act as if they've been in control the whole time, that they orchestrated the whole event right to the devil's suicide. But that will only work if I play along with them. And Peter, Peter will suffer too if this goes wrong. But what was it Hamish said when I asked him if he told Peter the situation? They didn't pretend to be desperately in love? Don't have to, he's already there. Already, think, already thinking ahead of me in the games again and well aware of the dangers in? Or already desperately in love? Already desperately in love. I don't know. I haven't even begun to separate out my feelings about PETA. It's too complicated. What I did was part of the games, as opposed to what I did out in anger at the Capitol. Because of how it would be viewed in District 12, or simply because it was the only decent thing to do. Or what I did because I cared about him. These are questions we unraveled back home, in the peace and quiet of the woods, where no one is watching. Not here, with every eye upon me. But I won't have that luxury for who knows how long. And right now, the most dangerous part of the Hunger Games is about to begin. Okay, we are now on to chapter 27. I think this is the last one. I think this is the last chapter. Please. Okay, this is the last chapter. We're going a little over, but it's okay. So, yeah, we're almost done. The Hunger Games. So, let's do the final chapter of The Hunger Games. <clears throat> I'll do my very best not to stutter. I've been stuttering this whole time. I'm doing my best, but my best just isn't doing the most. So, let us continue for the very last time. <clears throat> That's 27, page 464. The anthem booms in my ear, and then I hear Caesar Flickerman greet the audience. Does he know how crucial it is to get every word right from now on? He must. He will want to help us. The crowd breaks into applause as the prep teams are presented. I imagine Flavia, Zvena, and Octavia bouncing around and taking ridiculous bowing, bobbing bows. Say that they're clueless. Then Effie introduced how long has she waited for this moment. I hope she's able to enjoy it because if any, because as misguided Effie can be, that has been very keen and sick about certain things, I must at least suspect we're in trouble. Portia and Cinnabon received huge cheers, of course. They've been brilliant, had a dazzling debut. I now understand Cinnabon's choice of dress for me tonight. I need to look as girlish as possible and innocent as possible. Hamish's appearance brings the rounds of stomping that goes on at least five minutes. Well, he's accomplished the first, keeping not only one but two tributes alive. What if he hadn't warned me in a time? Would I have acted differently, flaunted the moment with the berries in Capitol's face? No, I don't think so. But I could easily have gotten a lot less convincing than I need to now. Right now, because I can feel the plate lifting above me to the stage. Blinding lights, the deafening roar, roar rattles the metal plate under me. And there's Peter, a few yards away. He looks so clean, healthy, and beautiful. I can hardly recognize him. But his smile is the same whether it's the mud or Capitol. And when I see it, I take about three steps and fling myself onto his arm. He staggers back, almost losing his balance. And that's when I realize the slim metal contraption in his hand is some of a cane. He writes himself, and we just claim to each other while the audience goes insane. He's kissing me all the time. I'm thinking, do you know? Do you know how much danger we're in? After about ten minutes of this, Caesar Flickerman taps on his shoulder to continue the show, and Peter just pushes himself aside without glancing at him. The audience goes berserk. Whether he knows or not, Peter is, as usual, playing the crowd exactly right. Finally, Hamish interrupts us and gives us a good-natured shove towards the victor's chair. Usually, there's a single ordinate chair from which the winning tribute watches 
a film of the highlights of the game, but since there's two of us, Game Makers have provided a plush red velvet couch. A small one, my mother would call it, a love seat. I think. I sit so close to Peter that I'm practically on his lap, but no. But one look from Hamish tells me that it isn't enough. Taking him off my sandal, I tuck my feet to the side of and lean. Ooh, tuck my feet to the side of it and lean my head against Peter's shoulder. The arm goes around me automatically, and I feel like I'm back in the cave, curled up against him, trying to keep him warm. His shirt is made of the same yellow material as my dress, but Porsche has put him in a long black pants. No sandals either, but a pair of sturdy black boots. He keeps solidly planted on the stage. I wish Cinnabon had given me a similar outfit. I feel so vulnerable in this flimsy dress, but I guess. That's the point. Caesar Slickerman makes a few more jokes, then it's time for the show. This will last exactly three hours and requires viewing for all of Panam. As lights dim and the seal appears in the sky, I realize I'm unprepared for this. I do not want to watch my 22 fellow tributes die. I saw enough of them die the first time. My head starts pounding and I have a strong impulse to run. How have the other victims faced this alone? During the highlights, they periodically show the winner's reaction up on the box in the corner of the screen. I think back to the earlier years. Some are triumphant, pumping their fists in the air, beating their chest. Most just seem stunned. All I know is that the only thing keeping me in this love seat is Peter. His arms around my shoulders, the other hand claimed by both of mine. Of course, the precious, the previous victors didn't have the capital looking for a way to destroy them. Compensating, uh, condensing several weeks into three hours is quite a feat, especially when you consider how many cameras were going at once. Whoever puts together the highlights has to choose what sort of story to tell. This year, for the first time, they tell a love story. I know Peter and I won, but it's a disproportionate amount of time is spent on us right before the beginning. I'm glad, though, because it supports the whole crazy love story that's my defense for defying the capital. Plus, it means we won't have as much time together tooling over the deaths. First up, our focus is on the pre-arena events, the reaping, the chariot ride to the capital, our training scores, and our interviews. There's this sort of upbeat soundtrack playing under it, as it make it twice as awful because, of course, almost everyone on screen is dead. Once we're in the arena, there's detailed coverage of the bloodbath, and the filmmakers basically alternate between shots of tributes dying and shots of us. Mostly Peter, really. There's no question he's carrying this romance thing on his shoulders. Now I see what the audience saw, how he misled their careers about me, stayed awake the entire night under the tracker jacker tree, fought Kettle to let me escape, and even while he lay in the mud bank, whispered my name in his sleep. I seem heartless in comparison, dodging fire balls, dropping nests, and blowing up supplies, until I go hunting for real. Then they play our death in full. The spear, my felix, a rescue attempt, my arrow through the boy, just took one's throat. You drawing her last breath in my arms, and the song. I get to sing every note of the song. Then something inside me shuts down, like I'm too numb to feel anything. Like watching complete strangers in another Hunger game. But I do notice they omit the part where I cover her in flowers. Right, because even that smack of, even that smacks of rebellion. Things pick up for me once they've announced two tributes from the same districts, and I shout out Peter's name, and I clap my hands over my mouth. As if I've seen different, as if I've seen him dif- indifferent to him earlier, I make up for it now by finding him, nursing him back to health, going to the feast for the medicine, and being very free with my kisses. Particularly, I can see the mutt and Cadillac's death are as gruesome as ever. But again, I feel it happens to people I've never met. And then comes a moment when the berries. I can feel the audience hushing one another, not wanting to miss anything. A wave of gratitude to the filmmaker sleeps over me when they, when they end not with the announcement of our victory, but with me pounding on the grass door and hovercraft screaming Peter's name as they try to re- revive him. Turning survival is my best moment of the night. The anthem is playing yet again and we rise that President Snow himself takes the stage followed by a little girl carrying a cushion that holds the crown. There's just one crown though and you can hear the crowd's confusion. Whose head will, will it be placed on? Until Snow gives a twist and it separates into two halves. He places the first around Peter's brow with a smile. He's still smiling when he settles the second on my eyes but his eyes just inches from mine are as unforgiving as a snake's. That's why I know, even though both of us have eaten 
would have eaten the berries, I am to blame for having the idea. I am the instigator. I am the one to be punished. Much batting and cheering falls. My arm's about to fall off from waving when Caesar Flickerman finally bids the audience goodnight and reminds them to tune in tomorrow for final interviews as if they have a choice. Peter and I are whisked up to the president's mansion for the victory banquet, where we have very little time to eat as Capitol officials and particularly generous sponsors all one another out of their way to try and get a picture with us. Face after face, beaming uh, faces after beaming faces flash by, becoming increasingly intoxicated as the event wears on. Occasionally, the council, I catch a glimpse of Hamish, which is reassuring. Our president's note, which is terrifying. But I keep laughing and thanking people and smiling as my picture is taken. The one thing I never do is let go of Peter's hands. The sun is just pe- peeking over the horizon when we strangle back to the 12th floor of the training center. I think now I'll be able to get a word alone with Peter. But Hamish sends him off with Portia to get something fitted for the interview and personally escorts me back to my room. Why can't they talk to him, I ask. Play time to talk when we get home, says Hamish. Go to bed. You're, you two were on air. You're on air at two. Despite Hamish's running interference, I'm turned to see Peter privately. After a toss and turn a few hours, I slip into the hall. My first thought is to check the roof, but it's empty. Even the city streets far below are deserted after celebration last night. I go back to bed for a while, then decide to go directly to his room. But when I try to turn it on, I find my own bedroom door has been locked from the outside. I suspect Hamish initially, but then there's more insinuous fear that the Capitol may be monitoring and confining me. I've been unable to escape since the Hunger Games began, but this feels different, much more personal. It feels like I've been in prison for a crime, and I'm awaiting sentences. I quickly get back to bed and pretend to sleep until Effie Trinket comes to lure me of the start of another big, big day. I'm about five minutes... I have about five minutes to eat a bowl of hot grain and stew. Not the stew again. Whatever, whatever, whatever. It's fine. Uh, before the prep team decides, all I have to say is the crowd loved you and it's unnecessary to speak for the next couple hours. When Cinnabon comes in, he shoes them out and dresses me in a white gauzy dress and pink shoes. Then he personally adjusts my makeup until I seem to radiate a soft, rosy glow. We make idle chit-chat, but I'm afraid to ask him anything of real importance because after the incident with the door, I can't shake the feeling that I'm being watched constantly. The interview takes place right down to the right down the hall and sitting room. A place has been cleared and the love seat has been moved in the surround and surrounded by vases of red and pink roses. There are only a handful of cameras to record the event. No live audience, at least. Susan Flickerman gives me a warm hug when I come in. Congratulations, Katniss. How are you faring? Fine. Nerds about the interview, I say. Don't be. We're going to have a fabulous time. And he, gives me, and he says, giving my cheek a reassuring pat. Not good at talking about myself, I say. Nothing you say will be wrong, he says. And I think, oh, Caesar, only that were true. But actually, President Snow might be arranging some sort of accident for me as we speak. Then Pete is there looking handsome and red and white, pulling me to the side. I hardly see you. Hamish seems bent on keeping us apart. Hamish is actually bent on keeping us alive, but there's too many ears listening, so I say, yes, he's gotten very responsible lately. Well, there's just this, and we go home. And we can't, and he can't watch us all the time, says Peter. I feel sort of sure run through me, and there's no time to analyze why, because they're ready for us. We sit somewhat conformally on the love seat, but Caesar says, Oh, go ahead, curl up next to him if you want. It, it looks very sweet. So I took my feet up, and Peter pulls me in close to him. Someone counts backwards, and just like that, we are being broadcast live to the entire country. Caesar Clickerman is wonderful, teasing, joking, and getting choked up when the occasion presents itself. He and Peter already had their rapport, and they established that night, of the first interview. That easy banter, so I just smile a lot and try to speak as little as possible. I mean, I have to talk some, but as soon as I can, I redirect the questions back to Peter. Eventually, though, Caesar begins to pose questions and insists on further answers. Well, Peter, we know from our days in the cave that it was love at first sight for you. From what, age five? Caesar says. The moment we got on her, says Peter. 
But Katniss, what about it for you? I think the real excitement for the audience was watching you fall for him. When did you realize you were in love with him? Says Caesar. Oh, that's a hard one. I gave a faint, breathy laugh and looked down at my hands. Help. Well, I should know it. Well, I know when it hit me. That night when you shouted his name in the trees, says Caesar. Thank you, Caesar, I think, and then go with his idea. Yes, I guess that's what it. I mean, up until that point, I tried not to think about what my feelings might be. Honestly, because it was too confusing, and it only made things worse if we actually cared about him. Then in the tree, everything changed, I say. Why do you think that was, urges Caesar? Maybe because for the first time, there was a chance I could keep him. I say, because the cameraman, I see Hamish give a sort of huff with relief, and I know I've said the right thing. Caesar pulls out a handkerchief and has to take a moment because he's so moved. I can feel Peter press his forehead into my temple, and he asks, So now that you've got me, uh, what are you going to do with me? I turn to him. Put you somewhere you, you can't get hurt. And then he kisses me. People in the room actually sigh. For Caesar, this is a natural place uh, to segue into all the ways we did get hurt in the arena, from burns to stings to wounds. But it's not until we get around to the mutt when I forget I'm on camera. Caesar's asked Peter how his new leg's working out. New leg, I say, and I can't help reaching out and pulling up the bottom of Peter's leg. Oh no, I whisper, taking in the plastic, the metal and plastic device that's like traces flesh. No one told you, says Caesar gently. I shake my head. Haven't had the chance to, says Peter, with a slight shrug. My fault, I say, because I used that Tourette. Yes, it's your fault. I'm alive, says Peter. He's right, says Caesar. He'd have blood to death for sure without it. Guess it's true, but I can't help feeling upset about all the extent that I'm afraid. Oh, I can't help feeling upset about, about it to the extent that I'm afraid I might cry. And remember, everyone in the country's watching me, so I just buried my face in Peter's shirt. Takes them a couple minutes to cock me back because it's better in the shirt. No one can see me there. And when I do come out, Caesar backs off questioning me so I can recover. In fact, he pretty much leaves me alone until the berries come up. Katniss, though you've had a shock, but I've got to ask the moment when you pull those berries, what was going through your mind? Hmm? Take a long pause before I answer, trying to collect my thoughts. This is a crucial moment where I either challenged the capital or was went so crazy with the idea of losing Peter I couldn't be held responsible for my actions. It seems to call for a big dramatic speech, but all I get is one audible sentence. I don't know. I I just couldn't bear the thought of being without him. Peter? Anything to add? No, I think that goes for both of us, he says. Caesar signs off and it's over. Everyone's laughing and crying and hugging, but I'm still not sure until I reach Hamish. Okay, I whisper. Perfect, he answers. I just go back to my room to collect a few things and find there's nothing to take but the Mockingjay pen Mage gave me. Someone returns it to my room after the games. They drive us through the streets in a car with blackened windows and the trains waiting for us. We barely have time to say goodbye to Cinnabon and Portia, though. We'll see them in a few months when we tour the district for a round of victory ceremonies. It's the capital's way of reminding people that the Hunger Games never really go away. We'll be given a lot of useless plaques and everyone will have to pretend they love us. The trains begin moving and we're plunged right in tonight until we clear a tunnel and I make my first free breath uh, after the reaping. <clears throat> after the reaping. Effie is accompanying us back, and Hamish too, of course. We eat an enormous uh, dinner and settle into silence in front of the television to watch a replay of the interview. With Capitol growing further away every second, I begin to think of home, of Prim, my mother, of Gale. I excuse myself to change out of my dress into a plain shirt and pants. As I slowly, th thoroughly wash the makeup from my face and pull my hair into a braid, I begin transforming back myself back to me. <clears throat> Katniss Everdeen, girl who lives in the seam, hunts in the woods, trades in the hops. I stare at the mirrors and I try to remember who I am and who I am not. By the time I join the others, the pressure of Peter's arm on my shoulder feels alien. 
When the train made to brief stop for fuel, we're allowed to go outside for some fresh air. There's no longer any need to guard us. Peter and I walked down the tracks hand in hand. Can't find anything to say now that we're alone. He stopped to gather a bunch of wildflowers for me. When he presents them, I work hard to look pleased because he can't know the pink and white flowers on top of the wild onions. Only remind me of the hours I spent gathering them with Gail. Gail, the, amount, the idea of seeing Gail is a matter of hours making my stomach churn. But why? I can't quite frame it in my mind. I only know that I feel like I've been lying to someone who trusts me. Or more actually, to two people. I've been getting away with it up to this point because of the games. There will be no games to hide behind back home. What's wrong, Peter asks. Nothing, I answer. We continue walking past the end of the train, out where even I'm fairly certain there are no cameras hidden in the scrubby bushes along the track. Still no words come. Hamish startles me when he lays a hand on my back. Even now, in the middle of nowhere, he keeps his voice down. Great job, you two. Just keep it up in the district until the cameras are gone. We should be okay. I watch him head back to the train, avoiding Peter's eyes. What does he mean? Peter asks me. It's the Capitol. They didn't like our stunt with the bears I blurred out. What? What are you talking about, he says. It seems too rebellious, so Hamish has been coaching me through the last few days, so it didn't, I didn't make it worse, I say. Coaching you, but not me, says Peter. He knew you were smart enough to get get it right, I say. I didn't know there was anything to get right, says Peter. So what you're saying is that the past few days, and then I guess back in the arena, that was just some strategy you two worked out? No, I mean, I couldn't even talk to him in the arena, could I? I stammered. But you knew that what he wanted to, you to do, didn't you? Says Peter. Bite my lip. Katniss, he drops my hand, takes a step as if to catch, and I take a step to catch me balance. It was all for the games, Peter says. How you acted. Not all of it, I say tightly, holding on to my flowers. Then how much? No, forget that. I guess the real question is what's going to be left when we get home? I don't know. Closer we get to District 12, the more confused I get. I say he waits for further explanation, but none is forthcoming. Well, let me know when you work it out, he says, and the pain of the voice is palpable. I know my ears are healed because even with the rumble of the engine, I can still hear every step he takes back to the train. By the time I've climbed on board, Peter has disappeared into his room. For the night, I don't see him until the next morning, either. In fact, the next time he turns up, we're pulling into District 12. He gives me a nod, his face expressionless. I want to tell him that he's not being fair, that we were strangers, that I did what I, or I did what I took to stay alive, to keep us both alive in the arena, that I can't explain how things are with Gail because I don't know myself, that it's not good loving me because I'm never going to get married anyway, and he just end up hating me later instead of sooner. That if I do have feelings for him, it doesn't matter because I'll never be able to afford that kind of love that leads to a family, to children. And how can he? How can he after what we've been through? I also want to tell him how much I already miss him, but that wouldn't be fair on my part. So we just stand there silently watching our grimy little station rise up around us. Around the window I see the platform thick with cameras. Everyone will be eagerly watching our homecoming. At the corner of the eye, I see Peter extend his hand. Look for him, unsure. One more time, for the audience, he says. His voice isn't angry. It's hollow, which is worse. Already the boy with the bread is slipping away from me. I take his hand, holding on tightly, preparing for the cameras, and dreading the moment when we finally have to let go. Okay. That is it. We have finished the Hunger Games. Woo! Oh my goodness, that was such a trip. I didn't realize it was going to end like that. I didn't think they were just going to, like, send all the former tributes. That's pretty messed up, honestly. Um, I didn't even think... Well, I guess I've never... I also believed that the Capitol was going to let them both live. Because, you know, Team Peter, Team Gale. 
but also like i just i forgot they were trickers you know tricker trick 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 people they were magicians in a sense because they were hiding their true intentions behind pretty words which sucks that was so sad but good thing katniss was able to think of something so they could both survive now i'm sad for Peta because Peta actually likes her and she does not care for him like that which sucks for him really bad poor guy hope he's okay heartbroken Peta. it's all right we still love you Peta. um i'm still team gail though because Katniss was faking it. She doesn't know what she truly feels. But she knows what she truly feels for Gail. Which is love. But yeah. I feel like Gail understands her more than uh, Peta. Because Peta's like had a softer life than her I guess. But that's not fully the case. Since they both went through a really traumatic thing. But you know. There's that. But yeah. That was The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. That was pretty fun. Um, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think. Because this came out in. When did, the, when did this even come out? I think this came out 2019. No, whoa, that's too early. <laughs> Maybe 2010 or something like that. 2010. Kind of see if it says in the back of the book. 2010? 2010? Um, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't say when it came out. Uh, I guess we'll never know. Well, I guess you always just search it up, but I don't really want to search it up right now. But yeah, um, it's been fun. I really actually enjoyed it. I thought I wasn't going to because it's not what I usually read, but this dystopian was actually pretty chill. Well, it was it was anything but chill, actually. It was pretty crazy now that I think about it. Yeah, um, I definitely think I realized I was focusing on the wrong things. Like, oh, she shouldn't drink wine. She's like 16. They're literally killing each other every day. Oh, I have my priorities are skewed. My priorities are so skewed. But yes. Anyway, that is all. So thank you so much, as always, for listening to my podcast. And there will be no outro today because we're done. So yeah, as always, thank you very much for listening to more. And I hope to see you again for the movie review. We're going to have a movie review. I'm going to watch the movie with some, with all of my guests, most of my guests that I had in the podcast. We're going to watch it. And I'm gonna we're gonna see what's different, what's the same, how it was done in the movie, what I like, what I disliked, and then that's it. So yes, once again, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed our little reading of the Hunger Games. So yes, my name's Madei, this was more, and I hope to see you in the next book. Bye! <laughs>